Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I've really enjoyed the past few weeks as you've been taking us through the lives of some of the notable founders. And today we're going to be talking about one of my favorites. Sounds like Ben Franklin is is due for an introduction. In the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayers in this room for the divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, that except the Lord build the house, They labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. Those are probably the most widely quoted words from the entire Constitutional Convention of 1787. They are definitely the most explicitly religious words spoken of that convention, at least recorded. And they are spoken by the oldest delegate to the convention and by one who is sometimes today said to be a secularist or a deist. I'm speaking about Ben Franklin. And obviously, these words do not sound like the words of a deist. So who and what was Benjamin Franklin? Fascinating figure. In fact, Carl Van Dorian, one of the historians who has written an autobiography of him, says in his biography that Franklin was a harmonious human multitude. What I mean, what he means by that is that there were so many different facets of Franklin, so many different aspects of his character that it's pretty hard to pigeonhole him into just one particular role. He'd been a printer. He had an interest in the ministry earlier in life. He was a philosopher. His sayings in Poor Richard's Almanac have been read for 200 years. He was a military commander delegate to the Continental Congress, signer of the Declaration of Independence, U.S. minister to England and later to France. He was the governor of Pennsylvania, a delegate to the Constitutional Convention, an inventor, one who conducted experiments on electricity with lightning, so many other aspects to this man's character. In fact, one thing that occurs to me right now is that he is believed to have been the inventor not of glasses, but of bifocals, and quite a fascinating man. But who was he? Probably not an orthodox theologian, but one who had a very high respect for Christianity, 
and one who clearly called upon God's help, and one who believed, contrary to what the deists of his day would have said, that God is actively involved in human affairs. That being the case, let's talk a little about Ben Franklin. We associate him with Philadelphia, but Franklin is actually born in Boston. He was the oldest delegate to the convention, being 81 years old at the time, which, do the math, that tells us that he was born in 1706. The day he was born, January 17th, was a cold, blustery winter day, but nevertheless, on the same day, they carried him across the street to be baptized in the Old South Church. It said that the home he grew up in was frequently the scene of prayer meetings, psalm singing, other religious activity. And he seems to have been a precocious child. In fact, we know he learned to read at an early age exactly when we don't know. In fact, he simply says in his autobiography, I do not remember when I could not read. He was put in a grammar school, though, at age eight. And very commonly, children to be put into grammar school after they had already learned at home how to read. They're being taught on the New England Primer, a very distinctively Christian textbook, and on the Bible itself. But his, the plan of his parents was that they would dedicate him to the Lord with the idea that he would become a pastor. And that was his desire at one time. But he seems to have moved away from that desire later on. Cotton Mather, a man who we describe as one of the most famous of the early American New England Calvinist Puritan theologians, Cotton Mather was frequently a pastor in the church that Ben Franklin and his family attended. And Franklin, as an adult, didn't accept all of Master or Mather's stern Calvinist doctrines, but he admired Mather. He shared his faith in God, and he also shared Mather's ethical system. In fact, some people have even described Franklin as a secular Puritan. That is, one who didn't necessarily accept all of the stern theology of the Puritans, but definitely accepted their moral views. In fact, one of the areas where it might be that Ben Franklin had some trouble in life is that he seemed to think that by the hardest of effort, he could achieve moral perfection on the basis of his own efforts. And at one point, he had made a list of the key moral virtues in a work that he titled Plan for Attaining Moral Perfection. And these moral virtues, he said, were, he describes with a brief definition, each of them, temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility. And he thought that if he would spend one week working on each one of these, by the end of the 13 weeks, he'd have them mastered, and he would be pretty close to moral perfection. But he found it didn't work. Once he got off one of them and started on another, some of the vices associated was not following. 
virtue of last week would start to reassert themselves. But here's what he says. I was surprised to find myself so much fuller of faults than I had imagined. I think if any of us examine ourselves, we'll find the same thing. But I had the satisfaction of seeing them diminish. My scheme of order gave me the most trouble. My faults in it vexed me so much, and I made so little progress in amendment and had such frequent relapses that I was almost ready to give up the attempt and content myself with a faulty character in that respect. But on the whole, though I never arrived at the perfection I'd been so ambitious of obtaining, but fell far short of it, yet I was by the endeavor a better and happier man. In reality, there is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Remember, virtue or humility was the 13th of the virtues he listed. Disguise it, struggle with it, beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It is still alive and will every now and then peep out and show itself. And you will see it perhaps often in this history for even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility and demonstrating just how easy it is to try to disguise pride as humility. And there's probably no worse form of pride than false humility. One of my religion professors in college said he was going to write a book titled Pride and How I Overcame It and a sequel, <laughs> Modesty and How I Achieved It. But you say that in jest, of course. But point of the matter is, Franklin saw here that, yes, by applying yourself, you could make some progress toward moral improvement. But moral perfection, human nature being what it is, was just a, totally out of our reach, apart from the grace of God. So this is Franklin, and particularly Franklin as a young man. We see that as he became a teenager, he began to have some doubts about the Puritanism with which he had been brought up. And anyway, we will talk a little bit more after the break about how he may have, for a short time, ventured into deism, but how he moved away from that at a relatively young age, as a matter of fact, 21, after the break. to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law talking about Ben Franklin today. And I know uh, I know Ben Franklin's always kind of seen as a colorful character, but um, I, I've wondered about his faith because, Colonel, I too have heard, I've heard tales or I've heard myths that, uh, oh, yeah, 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 he was not a very religious person, but uh, the, the picture you're laying out seems to be that uh, he was a very complex person and absolutely appears to be a seeker of truth throughout his life. I think definitely a seeker of truth. Well, let me add one thing. As far as all the stories about Ben Franklin, one story that commonly is told is that while he was an ambassador to France, that this time he had all kinds of affairs with French women. But one of his biographers simply notes that it was Van Doren again, that 
This was an age in which immorality was rampant in Paris and in which ladies in Paris, noble ladies, kept diaries in which they described their love affairs. And he says that in all the diaries we read at the time, not a single lady ever claimed to have captured Ben Franklin, that he seemed to enjoy the company of women. He could possibly be mildly flirtatious, but as far as actually engaging in immorality, the evidence of that simply is not there. But let's look at how he began to depart from the Orthodox Calvinist faith of his family. He says in his autobiography, my parents had earlier given me religious impressions and brought me through my childhood piously, but I was scarce 15 when, after doubting by turns and several points, as I found them disputed in the various books I read, I began to doubt of revelation itself. That is, he began to doubt that the scriptures were, in fact, the inspired word of God. Some books against deism fell into my hands. They were said to be the substance of lectures preached at Boyle's lectures. It happened that they wrought an effect on me quite contrary to what was intended by them, for the arguments of the deists, which were quoted to be refuted, appeared to me much stronger than their refutations. In short, I became a thorough deist. That's Franklin at age 15. And people had given him some materials to refute deism. They had the opposite effect. But as he reached the ripe old age of 21, he began to see the way deists live their lives, and he said that after observing deists in action, he said, I begin to suspect that deism, well, it might be true, was not very useful. In other words, maybe is correct, but if we emphasize it, all it is going to do is lead people into immorality, and so we shouldn't be emphasizing deism, even if it is true. Well, again, that's Franklin now at 21. By the time we get to the convention, he is 81, and there have been a lot of changes in his life. He has been through the War for Independence. There he worked closely with Presbyterian Calvinists, and he wrote that he wanted his grandson educated in Switzerland because he says, I want him raised as a Presbyterian, and a Republican, Presbyterian with a capital P, Republican with a small r. Not necessarily that he believed those doctrines, but that they lead people into good character. And for that reason, he thought, these are things that we should be emphasizing to people. But one thing happened during his 30s, I guess it would be, he was a printer in Philadelphia, and the great religious awakening that we have spoken of in connection particularly with Samuel Adams came to America in the 18 or 1740s. And as it did so, Franklin became very closely acquainted with the chief preacher of the Reformation or the awakening period. This man that we know as George Whitfield. Franklin did his printing for him free of charge. He would contribute money to his campaigns, but probably never fully accepted Whitfield's doctrine. But one time he describes Whitfield was preaching about the need to establish an orphanage and was going to take up a collection. Franklin says, 
I did not disapprove of the design, but as Georgia was then destitute of materials and workmen, and it was proposed to send them from Philadelphia at a great expense, I thought it would have made more sense to build the house here and brought the children to it. This I advised, but he was resolute in his first project, rejected my counsel, and I therefore refused to contribute. I happened soon after to attend one of his sermons, in the course of which I perceived he intended to finish with a collection, and I silently resolved that he should get nothing from me. <laughs> I had in my pocket a handful of copper money, three or four silver dollars, and five pistols in gold. As he proceeded, I began to soften and concluded to give the coppers. Another stroke of his oratory made me ashamed of that, and I determined to give the silver. And he finished so admirably that I emptied my pocket wholly into the collector's dish, gold and all. He also describes the effect that Whitfield was having on communities. He says that as he entered communities, after hearing his preaching, the multitudes of all sects and denominations that attended his sermons was enormous. And it was a matter of speculation to me, who was one of the number, to observe the extraordinary influence of his oratory on his hearers and how much they admired and respected him. It was wonderful to see the changes soon made in the manners of our inhabitants from being thoughtless or indifferent about religion. It seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. What Franklin seems to be saying here is, I don't know if this doctrine is objectively true or not, but it is having such a good effect on people. It's making drunks sober. It's making adulterers faithful. It's bringing families together. It is making slothful people into hard workers. And it works, and therefore, I'm for it. And he supported it all the way. Another thing we find about Franklin is he strongly emphasized throughout his life the importance of religion and the way religion has such a good effect upon people. He wrote to his daughter, for example, in 1764, go constantly to church, whoever preaches. The act of devotion in the common prayer book is your principal business there, and it properly attended to will do more toward amending the heart than sermons generally can do. For they were composed by men of much greater piety and wisdom than our common composers of sermons can pretend to be. And therefore, I wish that you would never miss the prayer days. Yet I do not mean that you should despise sermons, even of the preachers you dislike. For the discourse is often much better than the man, as sweet and clean waters come through very dirty earth. I am the more particular on this head, as you seem to express a little before I came away some inclination to leave our church, which I would not have you do. The year before, he wrote to his wife, you spend your Sunday very well, but I think you should go oftener to church. And by that, he meant go several times every Sunday. He wrote to a youthful admirer, Catherine Ray, be a good girl. Don't forget your catechism. Go constantly to meeting or church till you get a good husband. And then stay at home, nurse the children, and live like a Christian. Again, what we are seeing here with Franklin is not necessarily that 
He believes these doctrines are true, but if you believe them and if you practice them, it's going to make you a better person. And so Franklin is all for this. And throughout his life, it seems like Franklin is moving closer and closer toward a more orthodox faith in God. He has clearly rejected the deism of his youth. He clearly believes that God is that God governs in the affairs of men, as he says in his speech at the convention, which doesn't mean he's a Christian, but it means that he certainly is a long way from deism. are listening to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, learning a little bit today about uh, Ben Franklin. And in particular, Colonel, you're shedding some light on the faith of Ben Franklin. Hey, as I've said, we have seen Franklin move from the deism of his youth. Now, just for our audience, that term deism refers to someone who believes that there is a God, it comes from the Latin word Deo for God, that this God created everything and established natural laws for the universe, laws of physics and chemistry, laws of mathematics, gravity, and so on, and also probably moral laws for the governance of man. But after establishing these laws, this God moved away from the universe and maybe is living out there in another galaxy somewhere, Maybe he just went down to Argentina and is hiding there, but he is not actively involved in human affairs. In other words, in the deist view, God did not inspire the writing of scriptures. They're merely the work of them. God does not perform miracles that would be interfering with his natural order. God does not answer prayers. And certainly God did not become incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ taking on human flesh to die for our sins, because that's just not something that a deist God would want to do. But deism was fairly strong in France and Germany in the 1700s. It was less so in England and still less so in the United States. And while Franklin appears to have embraced some form of deism as a youth of 15, throughout the rest of his life, he seems to have been moving away from that deism. Now, exactly where he was in his beliefs, we don't really know for sure. As we saw at the convention, he says, God governs in the affairs of men. He says, we have been assured in the sacred writings. A true deist would not consider the Bible sacred writings. But all of this shows that possibly he is a Unitarian, but definitely not a deist. The president of Yale wrote him a letter sometime after the convention when he is around 83 or so, and he asks Franklin, what is your opinion of Jesus Christ? And Franklin answers, as to my opinion of Jesus Christ, I think his system of morality, the highest and purest the world has ever seen or is ever going to see. But he goes on to say, I have some doubts as to his divinity. 
Now, it's important to look at that, because most people just read that to say he did not believe in the divinity of Christ. Notice he says, I have some doubts as to his divinity. You could read that to say he has some doubt as to whether Jesus is divine. Or you could read it to say he has some doubts as to the nature of his divinity, whether it is the orthodox Trinitarian formula that God is three in person and one in essence, or possibly the modalist view that God is one God who sometimes appear in the mode of the Father and the mode of the Son and the mode of the Spirit, or possibly the Arian view that God the Father is supreme, that God the Son is kind of like second in command, divine, but not equal to the Father and not co-eternal with the Father, and the Holy Spirit is kind of like third in command. You could read that a number of ways. But at any rate, Franklin clearly believes in God, clearly wants to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, and clearly is very favorable toward the church, even if he doesn't agree with all of the church's doctrines. Which leads us to wonder, well, where then exactly was Franklin? Let me just suggest a few things that might give us an idea as to beliefs. One thing I would say is clearly a faith in God. And as to what he says about the nature of that faith, he says, I can see for many reasons that he is a good being. And as I should be happy to have so wise, good, and powerful a being my friend, let me consider in what matter I should make myself most acceptable to him. Next to the praise resulting from and due to his wisdom, I believe he is pleased and delights in the happiness of those who he has created. And since without virtue man can have no happiness in this world, I firmly believe he delights to see me virtuous because he is pleased when he sees me happy. Notice how he associates virtue with happiness. Contrast that to the way most people look to Jefferson's words in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Today, we would look at that, and we would say pursuit of happiness, that must mean the freedom to adopt every depraved, libertine thing we might want to do. That wasn't Jefferson's view. It wasn't the view of the founders as a whole. And as we see here, it clearly is not the view of Franklin. He says, God delights to see me virtuous because he is pleased when he sees me happy. Happiness is formed by virtue. We become happy when we are virtuous. And he says, and since he has created many things which seem purely designed for the light of men, I believe he is not offended when he sees his children solace themselves in any manner of pleasant exercises and innocent delights and no pleasure innocent that is to man hurtful. I therefore love him for his goodness and I adore him for his wisdom. So we see where Franklin clearly has a very high view of God himself and likewise, a high regard for the person of Jesus Christ and for the teaching of Jesus Christ. Secondly, as we've seen what he said about Jesus, Jesus may or may not be divine, but he clearly is 
a wonderful man and a wonderful teacher. Third thing, as to his view of the Bible. He refers to the Bible as the sacred writings and throughout his adult life. He quotes the Bible frequently, and he treats it with the highest degree of respect. Fourth thing we'd see is he is a strong believer in the laws of nature and of nature's God, as the Declaration of Independence says, and he was on the committee formed by the Continental Congress to draft the Declaration, although it was Jefferson that did the actual drafting. But Franklin is a firm believer in Newtonian science, and believing in Sir Isaac Newton's view of science, that is, believing a world that operates according to natural law, and that those laws are discoverable by man because they are repeatable in experiments. And the only way these laws can be constant and repeatable is if they are ordained by God. That is Newton's view. It is also Franklin's view. But Franklin writes of the great command of nature and of nature's God. He then speaks about morality, and he is a strong believer in Christian morality, even if not in Christian doctrine. He believed moral, morality, and virtue are essential for happiness and well-being, not only for individuals, but also for the nation. He says, the moral character and happiness of mankind are so interwoven with the operations of government and in the progress of the arts and science is so dependent on the nature of our political institutions that it is essential to the advancement of civilized society to give ample discussion to these topics. In other words, Franklin is saying, we need to make government consistent with the nature of man and consistent with producing the kind of morality and virtue that will make personal happiness possible. He says, let me add that only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. In other words, even though people want freedom, they cannot survive in a state of freedom without morality. Without morality, people degenerate into vice, and dictatorial control is necessary to keep people in line. Only a virtuous people can live in a society of freedom. That's one of the reasons why late in his life, he expresses some reservations about what's going on in the French Revolution. He didn't live long enough to see the full horrors of the French Revolution, but repeatedly he prayed for the King of France throughout this, and he began to feel the French Revolution is on the wrong track, and it's going to lead to the very kind of disaster and holocaust that it ultimately did lead to. Well, that gives us a little idea of Franklin. We'll go on to explore more about the nature of Franklin, his views of man, his views of government, and so on. And finally, to his closing days after this break. We 
welcome you to our final segment today of Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We're talking about Benjamin Franklin today. It's been fascinating to to hear a little bit of, of in his own words, his his insights into faith. What uh, what were some of his thoughts on government? Well, to understand his view of government, we need to understand his view of man. He probably would not be a believer in the total depravity concept that the Puritans that he was brought up with believed in, but he certainly believed that man is not morally perfectible apart from Jesus Christ and apart from the millennium. He believed that man is sinful, that man is imperfect. In fact, at one point he says at the convention that the small progress we have made at this convention is, methinks, a melancholy proof of the imperfection of the human understanding. Year after the convention, while the Constitution is being ratified, he says each man has his particular private interest in view. As soon as a party has gained its general point, each member becomes intent upon his particular interest, which, thwarting others, breaks that party into divisions and occasions more confusion. Few in public affairs act from a mere view of the good of their country, whatever they may pretend. And though their actings may bring real good to their country, yet men primarily considered that their own and their country's interest is united and did not act out of a principle of benevolence. Fewer still in public affairs act with a view to the good of mankind. In other words, what he is saying is, as far as people talking about benevolence for the world as a whole and being selfless and operating for the good of mankind, some people may even fool themselves into thinking what they're, that's what they're doing. But ultimately, most people are really out for themselves. Well, what that means is we need to interest the passions of men in serving the public interest, to use Alexander Hamilton's term. Men are vicious, he says, and in order for them to serve the common good, we have to make it to their advantage to serve the common good. Franklin says, there seems to be at present to be a great occasion for raising a united party for virtue, for forming the virtuous and good men of all nations into a regular body, to be governed by suitable good and wise rules, which good and wise men may probably be more unanimous in their obedience to than common people are to common laws. I at present think that whoever attempts this at right and is well qualified cannot fail of pleasing God at a meeting with success. In other words, he seems to think that maybe there are a few people, these wise philosopher kings that Plato spoke about, that could have a higher virtue in mind, but not the common people as a whole. Well, I have to say that I think that Hamilton was more on the mark than Franklin was on that point. Hamilton said that he wanted the government to be composed of the higher classes, not because they're more virtuous, he says, but because their virtues do not harm the public good as much. At least he recognized they're more virtuous than others. But more to the point, Patrick Henry recognized that those who run the government have the same sinful nature as everybody else, 
and therefore they cannot be trusted with too much power. Now at the convention, Franklin seems to recognize a great deal of this. A lot of people seem to think that Franklin was the guiding force at the convention, and that really is not accurate. The person who spoke more frequently than any other delegates at the convention was Governor Morris, and he made very substantive contributions as well. Morris is the one who chaired the Committee on Style that wrote the actual draft of the Constitution. Madison was one who contributed probably more than any other in terms of the basic philosophical ideas of the Constitution. James Wilson and others made contributions as well. Franklin, as far as the amount of his contributions, was really somewhere in between. Franklin was kind of a charming personality that everyone loved, and when people were on the verge of breaking up, he could say something that might bring people together again. But as far as really making substantive contributions, not that much. Several times when he spoke on the convention floor, one thing he urged was that the president not be paid a salary. The previous president, President Trump, did not take a salary, but salary has always been offered to the president, whether he wants it or not. Another occasion, he opposed the president having a veto power, which suggests that even though he would like the idea of checks and balances, he didn't think that those checks should include the president being able to veto acts of Congress. It was also Franklin who made a motion that the Constitution be ratified by the convention. And he expressed the belief that the convention had been guided by God in producing the Constitution. In the last day of the convention, he urged every delegate to sign the Constitution. Every delegate did so with three exceptions, but most of them did. How much Franklin's urging had to do with this, I guess we, we don't know exactly. But he said also that it isn't perfect, but we can be improved, it can be amended later, but it's better than what we have and we need to go with it. And then he said many times as I've been sitting here, I've looked at the president of the convention, President Washington there, and on his chair, there is the carved upper half of a sun with its rays going forth. And he says, many times as we have been through these debates, I have wondered whether that was a setting sun or a rising sun. Now I feel confident it is a rising sun. And it is also said that as Franklin was leaving the convention, and the del other delegates leaving the convention on September 17th, having signed it, a woman approached Franklin. Remember, the convention had taken place in secret, and so they didn't get daily press reports as to what was going on, and she asked, what sort of government have you given us, Dr. Franklin, a republic or a monarchy? And Franklin answered, a republic, if you can keep it. And that's been our challenge ever since, keeping the republic that our founding fathers gave us those approximately 234 years ago. Well, we need to close by looking at Franklin's view of eternal life. It is clear throughout the things that Franklin says that he does believe in eternal life, and he believes that eternal life is not simply a matter of something that we earn, rather that to achieve eternal life, 
we need the grace of God. But as a fairly young man, as a printer in Boston, he drafted an epitaph that he wanted to be placed on his grave. This epitaph was not placed on his grave, but he wanted it there nevertheless. And this reflects something of his view, but I love the way he writes this. The body of B. Franklin Printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. But the work shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author, author with a capital A. So Franklin clearly believed, even as a young man, that there is life after death, and he looked forward to that resurrection. And we certainly hope and pray that he could participate in that resurrection. Well, Brian, what questions come to your mind concerning Franklin at this point? I'm just grateful that uh, that you have helped to dispel some of the the popular myths. I mean, there there are people who try to remake the founding generation as well. You know, they were all raunchy raconteurs. You know, they um, clearly they were they were mortals just like us. They were imperfect and they were fallible. But to hear in his own words the reverence with which he approached, you know, his creator and uh, and human life and purpose, I don't know. It's very reassuring to me. Um, that that uh, that some of these myths can be uh, dismantled, and, and I don't know why. Do you, do you have any idea why would people want to remake these men in, in a more corrupted image? Well, I'll give you a couple of thoughts. One is that they seem to believe that religion is something that shouldn't be emphasized, so they leave it out. They just leave it when you write a biography of somebody, you leave out any mention of religion, and people reading that think, well, he must not have been very religious. Others just think, well, religion isn't important to me, so it must not have been important to them either. And so I think a lot of what they do is they recreate the founders in their own image. And we need to look back to what they themselves said. And we'll see that, no, they're not all strict Orthodox Christians, but definitely they're not deists. Most of them are Christian. Some of them are Unitarian. And Ben Franklin would be somewhere in between. 